with that, I, I do need to get us into God's Word here. Um, and we are going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and we'll get one to you. I'll try to gather myself. Um, the wonderful thing about the Bible and, and our faith is that um, it doesn't sugarcoat things. You don't, you shouldn't read the scriptures and think that life is going to be without suffering and trial. And so we're not, we're not spun out when these things happen, right? Um, God speaks plainly to us about it, tells us stories. Uh, with his people concerning it. And so, uh, it doesn't make it any easier, but at least we know we have a rock to stand on and a God who can speak into those things. Uh, Luke 19, verses 28 through 40 is where we are going to be. Let me, uh, read, pray, and, uh, we'll begin to dive in here. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany and at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, or went, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Oh, that's awesome. Let's pray. My Savior, you will get your praise. If not from me, then from the rocks. God, your name will be honored. Your name will be hallowed. Your name will be lifted high. If not from me, by me, by the rocks. But you will get your praise. You alone are worthy of that praise. For your works in creation, but especially your works in redemption. And so God, this morning, we don't, we don't want to miss out. We don't want to be sitting on the sidelines while the stones take up our song. That we want to add our voice to the choir. And so I'm praying that you would come and you would stir in our hearts. 
God, that you would come and you would show us who you are and what you have done. You set our feet to dancing and our tongue to singing. God, you are worthy of praise. We confess we don't always see it. We don't always feel like giving it. But God, here this morning, we are praying, come and help us. We want to see, be satisfied in you. We want to sing. You will get your praise, God. Get it this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, all right, so the text we have before us here presents a pretty amazing scene. Uh, it's a scene many of us, perhaps if we have a church background, are familiar with, uh, uh, especially because usually uh, a lot of times churches will kind of revisit it almost every year, uh, the, the Sunday before uh, Easter. Um, so what we have in our text is, is, you know, we celebrate sometimes as Palm Sunday, uh, in your Bibles, the little header there is probably the triumphal entry. It's the idea of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and really with that entering into the last week of his life. So things are about to get real for him um, and we have a lot to discuss now, I should say before I, I dive in here that um, if you were with us last time, you'll recall that we actually already dealt in great detail with verses 28 through 35. Uh, I mainly read those this morning just for context. We're going to really pick up our exposition in verse 36 uh, and, and draw some things out from there. So I got four items uh, on the agenda for this morning, if you will. You'll find it in your handout. Again, if you're an electronic guy, you can find the e-version of the handout and even the manuscript that I teach from online at mercyhillchurch.org. But um, here's what we're going to be looking at. First, the royal treatment. Second, fair weather fans. Third, peace in heaven. And fourth, singing stones. I'm going to try my best to fly through this first one here, but I, I think it sets us up um, for where we're going next, so I, I need to cover it. So first, the royal treatment. Um, Christ in our text, and we need to see this, and, and, and it's, in many ways it's, it's right there on the surface, but there's, a, there's some depth to it that I want to bring out. Uh, he's treated as king. He's presenting himself, and he's being treated as uh, king here in our text. And there are a few details that make this plain. I'll bring out a few of them. First, uh, the spreading of, of, of cloaks. Look at uh, verse 36 again, and you'll notice that Jesus is coming slowly, and he's, he's descending down the Mount of Olives, as it were, on this, this, this colt of a donkey. And as he's coming, we read there that his disciples are gathering around, and they are spreading their cloaks on the road out before him. Now, I mean, with the with the Oscars and all the different award shows that have just gone on, if you're familiar with some of those things. Uh, I think even just last week was one of those. Um, we may have in our mind already uh, something of, of the, the right kind of image here. You might think of what they're doing as they're laying down their, their garments, their outer garments, their cloaks, on the ground before Jesus as he's coming. It's almost as if they're giving him, you might say, the red carpet treatment. That, that they are saying, listen, here is not just an average guy. Here is not just the ordinary, you know, uh, pilgrim on his way into Jerusalem. 
Here's uh, someone noteworthy, someone worthy of esteem. But if we just stop at the idea of, of celebrity, and that's, I mean, to some degree, it's a decent enough image, but if we stop at the idea of celebrity, then we miss the fullness of the biblical picture. Because it's not just implying here his celebrity, it's actually implying uh, more than that, his royalty. His royalty. So in 2 Kings 9, in the Old Testament, you don't got to turn there, but just let me recount a story for you where Jehu, this guy by the name of Jehu, is first anointed king over Israel. And we're told that every person in the crowd round about him quickly, verse 13 of 2 Kings 9, took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So there's something in this action of the disciples here that's saying, listen, we recognize you, we submit to you as our king. So I say the royal treatment is is being given here in some way by his disciples. But there is more that we could uh, draw out when we consider how Jesus is here being presented as king. And really, one of the the, the, the more uh, significant pieces is actually what we would uh, uh, probably think was just an incidental detail. And it's not. We talked about it a little bit last time, but it's this idea that he comes in riding on the colt of a donkey. That he's he not just on a, you know, a war horse, he's not just strolling in, but he's on this colt of a donkey. And that is, is rich with significance in terms of the Old Testament. And I want, we're going to do some work in the Old Testament this morning. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I got a little bit more just front end application. Sometimes we're going to do some more back end work in the scriptures. I hope you can follow with me. We're going to do some of that here today because in this one moment with this single detail of Jesus coming in uh, on, on the cult of a donkey, there's actually all sorts of Old Testament prophecy and imagery converging. I'm just going to give you two texts. We could have done a lot more with this. I'm just going to give you two texts just to help you see that. You've probably heard this first one. I think it's the more the more prominent of the two. In fact, Matthew and John, in their account of the triumphal entry, actually quote from this text, Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9. Here's what Zechariah says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, especially since the time of David, right? There had been this, this, this longing for God to make good on these covenant promises that he made that someone's going to sit on the throne and make things right. And they're sitting there in, in exile and they're, or they're coming back into the land and they're going, okay, wait, we're still kind of guests in our own land. And Zechariah's there ministering at that time. And this, this prophecy comes out. Listen, your king is coming and you'll know he's there. How? When you see him riding up on the colt of a donkey. Here's the one who's going to bring restoration and blessing to Israel and through Israel to the nations, to the world. And we're watching him enter into Jerusalem in our text. But second, we can actually trace the idea of this king and his donkey uh, 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 even further back. 
all the way back to Genesis 49. Uh, this is where Judah, or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jacob is is blessing his sons. Jacob's about to pass, and he's blessing his various sons, the twelve sons who would later become kind of the twelve tribes of Israel, and. As he's blessing them, he specifically focuses in on Judah, his son Judah. And he starts to bless, and in that blessing is a prophecy. And here's what he says, Genesis 49, beginning in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The scepter, that's, that's what the king holds, right? So there in Genesis 49, even before the Davidic monarchy and things, he's talking about this king, this kingdom, this, 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 this line of kings that are going to come from the tribe of Judah. Talk about guys like David, talk about guys like Solomon. But as we look a little closer, we realize that that, uh, Jacob is in particular focusing in on one particular coming king. And we go on and we read a little bit more about him. Verse 11, here's what he says about this coming king. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. This whole idea of grapes and wine, it's a picture of the the prosperity, the abundance that this king, this coming king, is going to bring in and front and center in the image of this prophecy. Yet again is this idea of the cult of a donkey. And so as Jesus rolls into town on this donkey, it's more than just a way to get around. It is the fulfillment of age-old anticipations and longings and prophecies and things. And he's coming and saying, listen, I am the king from Judah through David. Here I am, the one to whom the obedience of the nations is going to come. The one through whom the blessing to the nations is going to come. So there is a lot happening in this little moment, Luke 19. You just read through it, go, okay, no big deal. You know, wow, why is he on a, I don't know, why is he on a donkey? What's that? Listen, there is so much going on here. But let me give you one more detail from our text there, and that comes in with what I would call the pilgrim's blessing. So if you notice, these disciples, as they're spreading their cloaks out and and uh, getting all excited. They, they're, they're starting to praise God, and they're lifting their voices. And here's what they're saying, verse 38. They're saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, this blessing, this benediction, you might say, is actually a, it comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. And it was actually... To my, according to my research, it, it, it was actually a pretty standard greeting for pilgrims as they would kind of be coming into Jerusalem for some of the many, you know, those great feasts that you'd have to travel into for. So they'd say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You go and you read Psalm 118 and you realize it's about this journey towards Zion, this journey into Jerusalem. But what these guys do, if you notice, is there's this subtle, except not so subtle, shift of language. 
And in that is, is, is the meaning and the significance for us. Psalm 118.26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It can be spoken generally to all the different pilgrims that would come in. But in verse 38, here's what they say. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is not just any pilgrim, in other words. This is, if I could put it this way, the pilgrim. The pilgrim who we've been waiting for. The coming king who we've been waiting for. When is he going to come into Jerusalem? Here he is. Here he is. Now, that's the royal treatment. And I wanted you to see that because it sets up this second piece here. Fairweather fans. We've got to talk for a moment about this idea of, of fair weather fans. I, I think we're all probably familiar with the term, but just in case we're not, the idea is when it's sunny, when the air feels good and the, the climate's just right, and whatever, hey, listen, I'll go join up, I'll, I'll, I'll follow, I'll be a fan of that team or I'll be a part of that group. Birds are singing, everything feels good. But when the storm clouds start gathering overhead, when, when things get a little rocky, when the rain's coming in, suddenly, I may just kind of, I may just follow the sun over here with this group. I may follow this team over here. It's the idea of fair weather. You go where the weather is. You go where the weather's nice. Where the weather is fair. And as I thought about this, I realize that in the Bay Area right now, there, there are probably, we're probably discovering there are a lot of fair weather fans. And, and here, here, here's what I mean by that. Um, when you consider the, the Golden State Warriors, uh, which, which I, I was about to get on the bandwagon last year, <laughs> but you, I don't know if we've ever seen this sort of turnaround in NBA history, frankly, where a team has gone from being first in their conference to last in their conference in the course of a year. And I'll tell you one thing that that's going to do. It is going to smoke out. It is going to expose fair weather fans. It's not like a slow death here. It's like, wow, what in the world just happened? I know there are injuries and other things, and hopefully they'll climb right back up. But the bottom line is, is you go from, yeah, we're on the top, to on the bottom. So the Fairweather fans, here's how they roll. Last year, they had the game on every night. Last year, they were wearing their jerseys to work, right? You know, you even got your, you know, Steph tattooed on your bicep or whatever, right? And that, that, that's when they were contenders. That's when they were, and you're all on that. And then this year, man, you haven't watched a game in months. The jerseys, you know, rolled up in your, in your drawer. That tattoo, you took it back to the parlor and tried to see if it turned Steph into like Stephanie and you told your niece that, you know, you did it for her. <laughs> and you never say this to anyone. But as you're watching the Lakers kind of climb to the top, number one in the West Coast now, you're secretly kind of watching them and rooting for them. You're following the fair weather. The real warrior fans are sitting there on the couch every night in pain, watching the game, just because that's what you do, right? Bleed gold and yellow, whatever it is. Now, why do I, I say all this? Well, 
to cut straight to it. In Luke 19, Jesus seems like a really good guy to get behind. He seemed like the fair weather is following him. The sun is shining over him. When Jesus is healing the blind, when he is raising the dead, uh, Luke doesn't record this, but in, in John's account of this, he says, listen, a lot of the crowds were following because he just raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're going, are you kidding me? This guy is so amazing. Wow. When he's, when he's healed the blind, when he's raised the dead, when he's, you know, one-upping and outsmarting the smug, self-righteous religious leaders, man, everybody's just going, hurrah, this is awesome. This is great. Luke 19, man, cast my vote for Jesus. Jesus for king. But in Luke 22, when they got him tied up in chains, and he's looking all pathetic, not even lifting his voice, not even, not even talking back, not even lifting a sword. Who gets your vote then? Who gets your vote then? Now, I've already discussed this, and so I'm, I'm ch- forgive me if you're, if you're coming in this morning and you haven't been tracking with this, but... Just to quickly catch you up, I mean, Rome, or I'm sorry, Israel, you got to know that they expected, when they're proclaiming, when they're heralding him as king, when they're saying, yes, take, step on my cloak, you are my king, when they're, they have a completely different understanding of what this king means and what he's going to do. They don't get it. They thought he's coming into Jerusalem, he's going to kick out Rome, when instead he's going to come into Jerusalem and let Rome kick him out. Take him out on a hill. Kill him. So this is going to be a problem. They're not going to get it. They're not going to like it. They're going to start taking off their jerseys. They're going to start booing along with the rest of the crowd. At least that's my read. I... Some scholars aren't sure exactly what to make of this multitude of disciples. Do they remain faithful and all this? Yes, I, I think so, probably. But were they? let me just let me just ask a question. John, in, in his account, John twelve nineteen, the the Pharisees are kind of looking at all these people following Jesus into Jerusalem, pray praising him and all this, and and they kind of say with disdain to one another. They go, "Look, the world has gone after him. The world." As if to say, there are a lot of folks following behind Jesus. And all I simply want to ask is, okay, if that's, if that's what Sunday looks like, where in the world are all of those folks? Where is, where are these people on Friday? Where are they? King! Yes! Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Where in the world are they when Pilate has him in custody and they say, what do you want me to do to him? Or he says, what do you want me to do to them, to him? Where are they? Make him King! I'll tell you where I think they are at best. They are quietly confused and troubled. Or at worst, they're crying out with the rest of the crowd, crucify him. 
when the weather was fair. Woo! He got my vote. When the clouds start to gather overhead, get him out of here. Not my king. This is what I wanted. Let me down. Crucify him. It's a fickle faith and a petty praise. Now, we need to pause for a moment on this, though it may be uncomfortable, and and consider ourselves for a moment. It is, I think, so easy to spread our cloak out on the ground before Jesus when we're thinking that he's going to deliver us, he's going to fulfill our plan for our lives, he's going to, we got this idea of what it means that he's going to, what he's going to do. It's easy to spread your cloak out on the ground when you think you've got it figured out what it means that he's going to be king in your life. But what happens when he doesn't do it? What happens when you don't get the job? What happens when you don't get the boy or the girl or the baby? What happens? What happens when you don't get the healing? What happens when you just get the hardship and the trial? You just pick back up your cloak? Dust it off, put it, put it back on, and go looking for someone else, some other king who will deliver on your agenda for your life. It's not altogether here unlike the matter that we took up last week in full. When the truth is scripture, when circumstances round about us don't feel good or nice to us, as they sometimes won't, what do we do? Do we jettison the Messiah just because he doesn't immediately fit into our categories or or, or meet our expectations? Or do we resolve to trust, confident that even though we are in the midst of confusion, he is able to be more. He is probably doing more than we can even think or can conceive in this moment. And we will see in due time. In other words... I don't want to be, and I don't want you to be, a fair-weather saint. I want to be a die-hard saint. Fair-weather saints, pick up and go when it's hard and find something else. Die-hard saints, man, they learn to praise God even when they're lying in the dirt. Though He slay me, I will hope in Him, Job thirteen fifteen, Or perhaps the more famous Job one twenty one. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Still my King. Though the ground shakes all around. Though the clouds gather overhead. Let the rain come. Let the lightning crack. Still my king. In sunshine and in storm. 
peace in heaven. Third item on our agenda. Peace in heaven. We get a window into one of the things our king has come to accomplish when we consider the words that these disciples use to praise him. Uh, perhaps they're not even fully aware of what they're saying, but it's quite profound when we look at it. Back in verse 38, we read this. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. We already looked at that. But then they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now you might just say, okay, that's just kind of common, you know, pray, you know, whatever. It's kind of those words that we sometimes collect together and we string them along and they don't really mean all that much to us. I, I, I wanted to stop for a moment. Go, wait a minute, that means an awful lot. This idea of especially peace in heaven. Now, at first glance, the, the statement here, this, this praise that they give, really actually seems to be, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel or even just the Christmas story, it seems to be almost a revisiting and recycling of the, the praise, the acclamation given by the angels back on the night of Jesus' birth in Luke 2.14. Look at what they say. They, they, they say this, this is when the angels appear to the shepherds, and here's what they, here's what they kind of sing out in the heavens there. Glory to God in the highest... And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So again, glory to God in the highest. And this idea of peace. But upon closer investigation, what we actually see is a slight difference between the two, right? And I think there's, there, this is where the meaning is found. This is what starts to kind of, uh, started to catch my eye. In Luke 2, it's peace on earth. That's being proclaimed, being highlighted. But in Luke 19 now, if you noticed, it's peace in heaven. And I want to think with you about this for a moment. So in the first, it is the hosts of heaven speaking of peace on earth. In the second, it is the hosts on earth, if you will, speaking of peace in heaven. And at the center of both of those scenes is the Prince of Peace, Jesus himself. And you say, okay, what are you, where are you going with this? Well, I think it's a picture in many ways of Jesus' role as mediator, in his role as the one who's going to reconcile heaven to earth, God to man. You've got to remember, since Adam, heaven and earth have been at odds with one another, right? Since Adam, God and man have had major blockage in the relationship. Not because God is bitter, but because he's holy. (laughs) Because he's holy. When he sends Adam and Eve out of the garden, puts the cherubim there with the flaming sword, you can't come back. There's been this dividing wall, God and man at loggerheads since the beginning. But now... In Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, He comes and brings reconciliation between the two. He comes to bring the two back together. He will offer from man's, uh, from sinful man's side what, what God demands in His holiness and justice on His side. Jesus is going to bring both. He becomes the sin offering you and I owe to God for our sin. And he also is God coming down to receive and extending that mercy that only really God could do. He stands in the gap. He mediates between heaven and earth. He builds a bridgeway of peace between God and man. 
I mean, these disciples, Fairweather fans as they may be, or at least at best confused, they have no idea the major victory, the massive victory that Jesus is about to win at the cross. They have no clue. Man, don't take your jersey off. This is the team you want to be on. He is reconciling heaven and earth. Which is why the great climax of the Bible, right, is now my dwelling place is with man. That's the new Jerusalem. God and man coming together, heaven and earth. And it's because of this Prince of Peace. It's because of Jesus. It's because of what he's about to do here in Jerusalem. That's why they're singing. And when he first comes down to earth, peace on earth. When he's about to ascend up to heaven, peace in heaven. Guy right in between the two, fully God, fully man, the man from heaven, the man on earth, here he is reconciling in himself all things. It's funny that John Lugo read before he prayed Colossians 1, 15. Um, I'm about to read it right now. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. I want you to hear this. This is Paul speaking of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And hear this now. I think I quoted this last week, but I wanted you to see it in context. Hear this last part, verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So here you have, he is God and he is man And he is reconciling God to man. He's from heaven. He's on earth. He is reconciling heaven to earth. And he's doing it by the blood of his cross. Peace in heaven. Now, I read this here not only because it describes how the cross brings peace to both heaven and earth but also because it presents, in uh, not so many words, the, the cosmic scope of the redemption that Jesus is going to, to, to work there at, at Calvary. There's this cosmic feel in Colossians there. We're talking about heaven and earth and all things being reconciled in and through Him. And that sets us up, really, to go to this fourth item on our agenda, namely, singing stones. Singing stones. Um, verse 39, the, the Pharisees hear this praise, this, this, this joyous celebration that the disciples are, you know, are engaged in here as Jesus is entering the city and they go, ah, not, not gonna have it. It offends their sensibilities. It, 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 it doesn't seem right. The commotion to them is an offense. And so they call on Jesus to rebuke his disciples. Tell them to quiet down. They're making a scene. They're, they're making you out to be a god or something. This, this sounds like blasphemy. They're going to lead to a political uproar. Rome's going to hear about this. It's not going to go, whatever it may be. They're, they're, they're engaged saying, stop. 
Shut them up. The amazing thing is that Jesus won't do it. But we could also say, I think his words are implying here, he can't do it. He essentially says, look at, look at verse 40. I think that's the meaning. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The idea is, I can't stop the praise that is coming my way because of what I am about to accomplish here. If I quiet them down, the rocks will start singing. It's amazing. Now, uh, I want to ask, what does he mean by this? And this is really what we're gonna what we're gonna end on. What does he mean by this? Yeah, by this statement, the stones are gonna cry out. Now, in in one sense, what I've already been alluding to, and even as I prayed in the beginning, I, I think it's speaking to the inescapable, unavoidable inevitable praise that will come to the Son of God for His work on the cross and His great victory, triumph, and the resurrection things. But in another sense, what I want to do in particular is focus in on that idea of stones. and just What does He mean by stones? So I was intrigued to see a few different options in some of the commentaries and kind of looked and, 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 and teased it out a little bit more and I was like, wow, this is actually quite profound. What does he mean when he says, listen, the very stones would cry out. What, what stones is he talking about and why would they be crying out? I got two possible meanings for you, uh, for us to consider here. Meaning number one, could be, and it's in many ways what I've already to some degree been alluding to, stones in the created world. Stones in creation. So just a part of the, the idea is creation's gonna cry out. So in this meaning, you would imagine Jesus talking about the stones that are strewn about the path as he's coming in. Listen, if I stop them, these stones are gonna cry out. They're gonna pick up where the disciples left off. If this is the meaning, we probably start to think of texts like Psalm 19, 1 and 2. I, you know this, I, I, I think. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens are, are, are singing about God's glory. The sky above, David says, proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The idea is creation is communicating. And it's even celebrating what God, who God is, what God is doing. And that is actually what you see even more plainly brought out in a text like Psalm 96, 11 through 13. Let me read this to you. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes. For He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. The idea is creation is singing. Is celebrating the fact that the King is coming. We hear the word judge and we freak out. But that's just because we only know things in this sinful, fallen world. 
When you hear judge as, as God or Jesus is judge, you hear the one who's going to come to make all the wrong right. And creation is singing about it, praising him for it. But Paul reminds us in Romans 8 that there's even more on the line for creation. There's even more of a reason why they're excited, why they're anticipating, why these stones strewn along the path may sing out. Paul reminds us that actually creation, just as we are, lay under the curse. That their fate is, in a sense, tied to ours. Think about it. When Adam and Eve uh, uh, sinned and God cursed them, it wasn't just them. Right? He said, listen, the creation, there's thorns that are going to come up. Things are going to, you know, your, your life is going to be hard. Stuff went wrong in the world. This place is beautiful, but it's also broken. Can I get an amen? Yes, we all experience it. We know it. And Paul, giving this vivid imagery to, to the creation, he says, listen, the creation is groaning. The creation is longing for this redemption. And it's looking, go, man, when are you going to make things right? It personifies, it anthropomorphizes, if that's a word, the creation. It just says, they're, it's longing too. Which is why when the Redeemer shows up on this dirty path, the rocks would start to sing. Here's the one who's going to overturn the curse and make things right. And that's why Jesus would say, listen, even if these disciples stop, the rocks will just pick up in their place. And I wonder if you realize that when the disciples stop at the cross, when it's quiet, there's no loud singing and praising the king. But everyone thinks it's over. Creation is still bearing witness to what's going on. So we read that as he hung there lifeless on the cross, though it was the noon hour, the time when the sun would be at its brightest. That's why that time is emphasized in the gospel. At the noon hour when the sun should be shining bright because the S-O-N is on the cross, the sky goes dark. I just literally, with my hand gesture, poked myself in the eye. That's when you know I've gone too far with these hands. The sun, the sky goes dark. This is what Luke says. There was darkness over the whole land while the sun's light failed. Just... The world doesn't get it, but we get it. The creation gets it. God, the creator of all, is being undone on the cross. The sun's light just fails in that moment. And what's amazing too is, when does his resurrection happen? Have you noticed this little detail? It happens at Dawn, Luke 24, 1 says. In other words, the S-O-N rises up from the grave when the sun is about to rise as well. Creation bearing witness to the work of the Messiah. Even when man is just locked in a room somewhere, forgotten, this is over. Singing out. Stones are singing. That's meaning number one. Meaning number two, 
um, uh, is, is, is quite intriguing to consider. And that's that these stones Jesus is referring to could in fact, and maybe it's not an either or, maybe it's a both and, but could in fact be referring to the stones that lay over top one another in the temple. In the temple structure, at this point we may uh, imagine him referencing or gesturing towards the temple that would have stood prominently off in the distance as they were entering Jerusalem. Why we could consider this a plausible interpretation is that actually the stones of the temple are talked about in the immediate context. Verses, uh, verses 40, verse 44 of Luke 19, verse 6 of Luke 21, talking about stones of the temple. And so when he's saying stones crying out, could very well be a reference to the stones of the temple. And now you ask, what does that imply? What does that mean? Why would the stones of the temple be singing, be crying out because the Savior, the King is here? Well, what we come to see is it's not just, if if this is the meaning, it's not just the structures of creation uh, or what you might call general revelation that are going to praise God and, and praise the Son and are longing for His redemption, but it's also the structures of redemption, or what you might call special revelation, that are going to do the same. It's not just the heavens that are declaring the glory of God and celebrating. It's all the Old Testament types and shadows and things that all along the way were pointing to Him. Those things are going to enter into the chorus of praise. Am I going to seminary on you? I'm sorry. It's pretty amazing, and I want you to see the glory of our Savior. And how everything in history has been leading to this moment, anticipating this moment, longing for this moment. It's why they're singing. So I just finished reading the, the book of Exodus in my devotions. And, you know, if you've read it, you, you know there's a large section in there that at first read you're going, this is not very edifying to my soul because it's chapter after chapter about the tabernacle, its structures and the things that you have to weave and the linen and the put the lights here and put this here and get this guy here and put a little oil here and do this there and get some blood on that and in fact put blood on the whole thing and you know you're just like what in the world is going on? Page after page. And of course we know the tabernacle just becomes permanent as a structure in the temple, right? That's where I'm going. But what we come to realize is that it's all about Jesus. On second read, as you dive a little deeper, you realize the whole thing, the the, the tabernacle, the temple, everything about it is about Him. It's about Him, His ark. I mean, he, He is the ark, the ark that's there holding the law, the Ten Commandments within it. In the most holy place. Jesus is the ark who perfectly embodies the law, fulfills it entirely, and, and, and is God's presence with us. The mercy seat of that ark where God would meet with man, right? That's Jesus who, who embodies the mercy of God. Is God actually come down to us and meets with us face to face? Jesus is the bread of the presence that they would set out there. Jesus himself says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the fulfillment of those lights and the lamps and he is the light of the world. Jesus is the incense. The sweet aroma that pleased the Father, that is the life of the Son and the death of the Son. He is the priest 
who's been set apart as holy by God to minister in His presence and bear His people on His heart. But He's not just the priest. He's also the sacrifice, spotless, sinless, unblemished, who would be offered up for sinful man. He is, his spirit is, is the oil of anointing that makes you and I now a royal priesthood in him. His righteousness is the garments, the priestly garments. We are clothed in his righteousness and can now come boldly into God's presence. His blood fulfills that washing in the basin because that's how we are cleansed. I mean, you understand, all of this, all of this, the years and years and years before Him are anticipating, picturing, showing. And that is why when this guy rolls down the street on his donkey, the temple is going to scream out in joy. This is the one. This all been pointing to. Here he is. You're not going to be able to keep it silent. As Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. It's amazing. And you remember, as with creation, the stones of creation, just when the, uh, the disciples do actually go silent, as he's hanging there lifeless on the cross, the temple is still bearing witness. The temple is still bearing witness to what's happening, even when we don't get it. Do you remember this detail? Luke 23, 45. As he breathed his last, as he yields up his spirit, what does the temple do? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom, Matthew specifies. It wasn't man that said, it wasn't vandalism. This is God bearing witness through the temple. The temple singing out, saying, listen, the dividing line between man and God has been done away with in Jesus, and you can come in. We didn't get it. The stones of creation singing out, stones of the temple singing out, and we're sitting there going, gosh, it's over. That's why he says you could stop them. In fact, they will stop. But you're not going to be able to stop these stones from singing. But now the question is, if these stones are singing, are you? Are you? How much time do I got? Oh, we got some. We got a moment. There's actually one last stone that I want to talk about. It's outside for sure. The boundaries, I think, of what Jesus would be referring to when he says, these stones will cry out. But nonetheless, it's important to consider. Because we've talked about how the stones of creation will sing. We've talked about how the stones of the temple will sing. But now I want to talk about the stones that we find inside our own chests. You realize that man in his fallen nature, so hard, Against God. So fair weather fan, so whatever you want to say. So hard that God throughout the Bible refers to our hearts as stones. Stone there's a stone in my chest. And so we look and we say, Listen, I want to praise. I want to sing out. 
I want to see this man coming into Jerusalem. I, I want to see the wonder of what he's doing and be stunned by it. I want to be set to singing. What do I have to do? I want to be one of the stones singing out. It's not necessarily so much about what we can do as much as it's about what he has already done and is doing. Let me show you this. It is profound and it just lays us bare before him with open hands. In Luke 22, Jesus will institute the Lord's Supper and he'll talk about this is the blood of, of the new covenant. In fact, we're going to take communion together today. Tolu will lead us in that. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant. New covenant in my blood. Now that new covenant is something that's been promised throughout the Old Testament. One of the places it's spoken of is in Ezekiel 36. And here's what God says through the prophet. This is what he's going to do in Jesus. This is what he's going to do through the cross and the spirit falling and all the things that follow. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. In Ezekiel 37, the picture is this valley of dry, dead bones. And God, through the preaching of the word of the prophet uh, Ezekiel, raises those bones up to life. But here in our text, it's him reaching into the tin man, as it were. The, the people that are just hard and so putting a heart in there that's alive and beating and beats in the right way. Not just for myself and my stuff and I'll like God if He gets on my team. But no, I can see now what Jesus is up to. I can see now how I've been off and I need God and that He's provided the sacrifice for me and He's making a way for me to actually have satisfaction that doesn't just drain out the bottom but will ultimately find its way towards glory. God is the one. What this does, brothers and sisters, is it just causes us to sit here with our hands open. And that's how I wanted to close. And just say, God, we can't. You're feeling hard. You're feeling dead. Okay, yes, we can repent of sin and we can this or that. But, but there's a lot that we can't make happen. We can't perform heart surgery. God can come in and change and work. He can put a new heart within us. He can set our tongue to singing. So I just want to close by praying that way with us. So I would like to join those stones in giving our Savior praise. Lord, we, in many ways, the the Old Testament, the, 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 the witness of Scripture shuts our mouths. We realize that we, our hearts are prone to wander. We 
twist, we distort, we, we, we don't keep the faith. We, we like you for a while and then we leave. God, we need you to pour out your spirit. We need you to remove the heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. And some of us have the heart of flesh, but we're struggling and there's still remnants of stone. We need you to soften. We need you to move. You're not waiting for us to figure it out. You've come to the cross. You came into Jerusalem to to, to help, to make a way. And so God, here we are begging you. Glorify your name by pouring out your spirit upon your people, softening our hearts and elevating us to sing along with with the structures of creation and redemption, with the heavens and the temple and everything else. You are worthy. We love you. It's in your precious name that I ask these things. Amen.